0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon.
1: Now, you see, I was waiting there for Michael McMullen to introduce himself, but that's not going to happen because he's quit the show. No, he really has. Uh, <laughs> I'll come to that bombshell in a moment. But anyway, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. It's nice to be back after our summer break. And there I was, uh, innocently enjoying the sunshine. And when my back was turned... Well, Snooker Tour came along and said, we're relaunching our podcast and we'd like Michael McMullen to present it. And by the way, we'll be paying him. And they also said he can no longer appear on this podcast. Well, you know what they say, it's called show business, not show friendship. Even Lennon and McCartney called it a day eventually. Uh, I don't blame Michael, we all have to put food on the table and it's a good opportunity for him. You know, we'll we'll stay friends. If I see him in a corridor, I'll still sort of nod towards him. Um, I do find it interesting though that an organisation as large as WST couldn't actually find anyone from its own ranks to present its podcast, so they poached my co-host, and I'm sure it's a complete coincidence that it also damages this podcast. Uh, I don't really see why he can't continue on here. All we talk about is the Mercantile Classic and Fergal O'Brien. Uh, it seems a long time ago now, doesn't it, <laughs> when Fergal came on. Maybe we should have just uh, stay with him. Um, listen, I think there could have been a little more courtesy about how all this was done. I'd like to think, uh, let's use Talking Snooker podcast as an example. If I'd wanted to make a big money offer to Phil Haig to come and be on this podcast, I'd like to think I would ring up Nick Metcalf first and say, Sorry old sport, but I'm making a move for Phil. All's fair in love and podcasting, I'm sure you understand. In fact, I found out about all of this at the last minute, hence this week, it's just me. I've said before, and I definitely think it bears repeating, WST don't really show any respect to anyone else trying to promote the sport. Like a lot of big companies, they don't really see the world outside themselves. They tend to think everything they do is brilliant. Some of it is brilliant and some of it isn't. Well, let's hope the relaunch podcast works better than its last iteration, which was uh, scrapped after something like 10 episodes, I think. So what what is their podcast going to be? Well, they say they're going to do interviews with the players. So basically what I was doing on here six years ago when I launched this podcast then. And by the way, if you delve into the back catalogue, you can hear my interviews with the likes of... Neil Robertson, Stephen Hendry, Mark Williams, Mark Selby, Sean Murphy, Ken Doherty, Graham Dock, Mark Allen, Barry Hawkins, Corin Wilson, Mark Afu, Alan McManus, Neil Folds, Mark King, David Grace, Martin O'Donnell, Michael Holt, Martin Gould, Fergal O'Brien, twice, Peter Devlin, Jordan Brown, Ricky Walden, Gary Wilson, Anthony Hamilton, Ali Carter, Joe Johnson, Dominic Dale, and possibly others I've forgotten. Anyway, as you can hear, I've taken it really well. <laughs> I plan to carry on for now, hopefully with some uh, special guest Hosts, a co-host in coming weeks, a bit like, uh, on have I got news for you? After Angus Deaton left in scandal, although of course he was only doing coke with prostitutes rather than joining WST. So as I say, this week is just me. I'm going to be going through your emails. Of course, as we ended our last, uh, what we rather grandly called series, there was a week where we did, we had I think one email, and uh, you know I rather pathetically put the call out. Well, thankfully, we have loyal listeners on this podcast, and they answered the call. So a lot of built up, and we're going to start with Gareth McGinley. I think it, I assume this is the Gareth McGinley that wrote the Tony Knowles biography Heartbreaks. So thank you, Gareth. This is on the uh, the big subject, really, that uh, that dominated discussion in the last few months. And that is the David Taylor fan club from the 1980s. The sort of uh, details, sketchy details, came out about the David Taylor fan club. But uh, Gareth has made inquiries. He says, I've just been catching up on a few of your podcasts. The David Taylor fan club discussion made me chuckle. And as an 80s snooker enthusiast, I felt duty-bound to go on a search to see what I could find. I was sure I'd seen an advert for the fan club somewhere previously, but unfortunately my search for that proved elusive. However, I did track down a few nuggets, he didn't mean Steve Davis there, a few, a few nuggets, including some info on the fan club from a 1984 edition of Q World, which also happened to contain a David Taylor competition. The questions from which you could use on a future podcast. This is huge, isn't it? It really is. He said, I located a couple of funny tweets about the fan club as well. Well, uh, obviously this is not a visual medium, but he sent me these uh, clippings. Now, this is, I'm going to read from uh, the the Q World in 1984. So this is a letter from a Janice Whitlock in Derby, okay? And this is what she says. So they've obviously done a feature on fan clubs, and they've asked their readers to write in about fan clubs, and this is what she said, okay? This is Janet Whitlock from Derby, the Q World, October 1984 edition. She says, I'm writing in an answer to your request in data file in August Q World for details about fan clubs. David Taylor's fan club costs £4 to join. For this, members receive a poster, a badge, a short biography of David, a membership card valid for 12 months, birthday cards and Christmas cards signed by David, newsletters and news of any other, f- uh, any other offers which may become available. Now, the first thing that jumped out at me here, £4 in 1984, that's a lot of money. I mean, that must be, you can times that by 10 now. It seems a lot of money for, let's just run these <laughs> these goodies by you again, a poster, a badge, a short biography of David. I mean, how short exactly? Is it is it like a novella or is it just a half of an A4? It doesn't say. Uh, a membership card value for 12 months, birthday cards and Christmas cards signed by David, newsletters and... Uh, news of any other offers which may become available, which sounds to me like spam. The Q, the Q World editorial staff, uh, I, I think, uh, sort of. I'm not suggesting the David Taylor fan club, by the way, it falls under this category, but it seems there are a few scam fan clubs knocking about because um, it actually says here, in their answer, they they uh, say, you know, keep them coming in, but it says, uh, it says we've heard of a few people being ripped off by incompetent fan clubs. Well, um, as I say, no suggestion the David Taylor one was. We're still to meet anyone who's actually got uh, any of the, uh, the badges or the posters, and it was a member. So if that's you, then uh, do get in touch. Now, uh, we continue. Uh, Daniel Schneider, apologies to Daniel, he actually emailed us in May. He went into the spam folder, which is why it, it didn't turn up until he alerted me to the fact he'd sent this email. So he's covered a few subjects. Firstly, he says, I was really sad to hear Colin Murray will not be presenting anymore for Eurosport. In my eyes, he was alongside Hazel Irvin as the best presenter in the game. I met him at the German Masters where I worked as a volunteer. He was always knowledgeable, highly professional and very funny. His intro and outro lines were classic. It's a great loss for snooker, but I understand his move, even though I would never choose football over snooker. I wish him all the best. Any news who's going to replace him? I'd love to see Rishi Passad. I always enjoyed him presenting on BBC ITV. Rishi doing the cricket on Channel 4. I also thought Dave Rogers did a great job at the Championship League, so maybe he'll be a candidate. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who's going who's gonna, to uh, step in. Obviously, Andy Goldstein does a lot of the, the snoop as well on Eurosport. Rishi Passad, by the way. I mean, he's uh, I've seen him <laughs> this year already in the last few weeks at Wimbledon, the Open, and now at the Olympics. So Rishi, very, very busy, and quite rightly, because he's very, very good. Yeah, Colin was excellent. Um, he, he, he had his own style. I think that's what I always admire about any broadcaster who stands out like that. He did it the way... That suited his personality rather than trying to mould his personality to the broadcasters. And listen, he's not going to be harder for work. He does football show quest. He does his five live show. He gets plenty of work, Colin. It uh, just felt the snook. I think because they are long days. Maybe it was just one sort of gig too far. Maybe. Um, and yeah, you're right about sort of his, his lines. He's a great writer. You know, the, the scripts he puts a lot of work into. Um, they're not just sort of the you know sort of the usual sort of banalities if you like, he, he puts a lot of work into them and, and you know, as I say, we'll see, we'll see plenty of him, just not anymore on the snooker. Daniel's next point is the Q School. He says it's a real show there are no there were no str- still no streams available for Q School. As I say, he wrote this in May. Do you know why this is? These days, streams are very easy to set up and not expensive. I know that because we've supplied live streams for various events, including snooker. I'm sure there is demand and I don't think money is a problem considering you have over 200 players paying £1,000 in entry each. I don't know the official reason, my guess is it's probably just one hassle too many. I get the feeling with the Q School because of course it comes at the end of a very long season, just after the World Championship, that everyone who's working on it is just trying to basically get through it, you know, and maybe this is just one sort of additional thing that people don't want to be doing. I think there would be a market for watching how big that would be, I'm not so sure. I mean if there's betting on it then there will always be people watching, so maybe, Next year, the, the you know that could happen. Um, I think it makes sense. It's not. It'd be nice to see how the uh, how the Q School pans out and the sort of the way these professionals are found. My guess, though, it probably is money. I mean, yes, you're right. They get the they get the the thousand pound entry fees in, but they could then that goes into the operating costs and then back into the circuit and maybe uh, the bean counters don't think it's worth going into the Q School streaming. Daniel's uh, other point I'm going to just read out. The Wild Cards for Women. He says, I support the idea of trying something new. Well, just to remind you, uh, Brian Evans and On, On Yee from Hong Kong have been given tour cards. They're not wild cards, actually. They're tour cards as a quali- as the women's circuit is now qualifying circuit. So a bit like sort of the non-British uh, like Africa Tour, Australia Tour, some of the amateur Tours, Challenge Tour, that sort of thing. Two cards for the women's circuit. Anyway, he says, I support the idea of trying something new see what impact it might have so from a commercial point of view i think it's good to have two women on tour next season however i don't think the women's tour should be a qualification to the main tour as it's not open to everyone Uh, some might say so aren't under 21 championships or regional championships true but everyone is under 21 once in their lives and everyone lives in a region where they have a chance to qualify through a regional championship and women can play in almost every one of them and even if there is one championship where women aren't allowed to play in uh, the answer shouldn't be to create more closed competitions, to make everything open to everybody. If you look down the women's ranking lists, there are players in the top 16 who've never made 100 breaks. The competition for the top w- women to qualify is basically only two or three of the top women players. And yes, that's probably similar to championships in Africa or Oceania, but I don't support their tour cards either, considering there's very little competition. I think a good idea would be to let winners of low competi- competition championships, in Africa, Oceania, America's Women's Tour, compete for one tour card in let's say, best of 19 matches against each other and everyone who doesn't get through gets free entry to Q School. One last thing on that topic, it's very difficult these days to discuss things like that, even worse when it comes to political topics. Even though I supported maybe 90% of the decisions, some people on Twitter were trying to label me as if I'm against women to even exist. I don't care what people on Twitter say, but if they want to convince people from their position, maybe it's not a good idea to throw even people that are very close to their position in front of the bus, ridiculous. Well, Daniel, that's Twitter, really, isn't it? I don't think that's... You know, that won't come as a surprise to anyone who's uh, observed that medium, which I think I think most people would agree has kind of gone downhill over the years and, and in this sort of time of division we live in has continued to contribute to division. Uh, in terms of your your overall point, I understand what you're saying. I support the places for the women and, indeed, for the, the Africa Tour and Oceania Tour and all the rest of them because, basically, because it, re- it reflects well on snooker, it, it's opens the game up to new, potential new markets and, you know, it's a good commercial decision and there's a difference between a commercial decision and a strictly fair decision. And as I've said before, I don't think it's fair that the whole circuit's based in the UK, you know, for for, the, for all these other countries. So it's, I think, a decision that, you know, yes, there's the, the, the standard uh, is lower on the women's circuit, it's lower on some of these overseas circuits, but having a chance to prove themselves and to improve, I think personally, is a good thing. I'm going to take a, just a brief second to have a drink of water. <clears throat> you see, when Michael was here, remember Michael, he used to be on the show, he could have filled in there. But anyway, <laughs> we continue. Martin Eccles, this British Open has lost its shine before it starts. Short matches, so short it's like having another shootout, where luck can play a big part on a result. These matches definitely favour the low-ranked players, could result in a final in which the general public, not snooker nuts like us, won't bother to look at it. Look at, well, he's what Martin's referring to. The British Open first four rounds are only best of five, building up to a final that's only best of eleven. So it is a short format. Uh, there's been a bit of comment on this. My view on this is, I think the problem with it is, the British Open is not a new event. It's an event that a lot of people have a lot of memories of. It ran from 1985 to 2004. It was ITV's flagship event for a few years in the 80s. It had the second biggest first prize in the sport, behind owning the World Championship. So the British Open was always a high-prestige event. In some ways, maybe they would have been better actually calling this something else. And if it's a completely new event, there's more justification for having a different format. Uh, I've got to be honest, I wouldn't have chosen this format myself. I think the matches are very short. Uh, I've not lost any sleep over it either. Um, you know, a lot of people... Uh, potentially like to see a sort of revolving cast of people during an afternoon rather than one long match. Having said that, ITV's most popular event in terms of ratings is the Tour Championship, where the matches are best of 19. That's just a fact, and I do think that's because they, they all end in the evening. It's a slow-burning drama. They're not all close, of course, but when they are, as with Ronnie O'Sullivan against Barry Hawkins in the semi-finals this year, the TV audience is huge. It was over a million, second time on ITV4, which is a minority channel, ...that the snooker's got over a million. Actually, the first also involved Barry Hawkins against Marco Fu, interestingly. Here's my issue with the whole thing, though, Okay, You can argue against the short format. Some people argue for it. My issue is this. Our old friends again at World Snooker Tour, okay, have made no comment, no statement... ...no explanation, no justification for why they're using this format. What they did was, when the tickets went on sale, they linked to the ticket order form... And people noticed it there. They didn't say in their press release or in their story on the website, by the way, we're using this format, and this is why, got on the front foot and explained it. They just haven't said a word about it, which suggests to me they don't have a lot of confidence in it. I've got to tell you this as well. It wasn't ITV's idea. This format was signed off before they came on board. Now, they've gone along with it. They're not against it, but it wasn't for the demands of TV. This was a format that World Snooker Tour came up with, but they have not explained Why? Why not just come forward? Maybe they're spending too much time planning their new podcast, he says, not letting it go. <laughs> but why not just say? What, what's the, what is the reason? What is the reason? They haven't said why. You know, there might be a perfectly good reason, but at least come up with something. Don't just leave everyone hanging because it looks like, actually, you don't want anyone to notice. Well, people have noticed. I know a lot of players are not happy. Some players I've spoken to are all for it. Uh, they're all for a shorter format. They're all for any format, actually, if you've got a chance to earn hundred grand out of the week. But I just find it incredible. They haven't, said, they haven't given any reason why they're using this format. Um, I find it amazing, actually. Uh, maybe they will before the event starts, but they haven't yet. James Evans. Since discovering your brilliant podcast a few months ago, I've been hooked and listened every week, usually when I'm walking the dog. Admittedly, not hooked enough to trawl back through past episodes, like some have done. I love the guy who went back to episode one and was keeping Fergal stats, etc. Yes, we've not heard from him for a while. He maybe he's, uh, I don't know, maybe he's found something better to do. He said, and last week's hard listen was in the realms of so bad it's good territory. But still, you can cap me in as an avid fan, keep up the good work. So, in this quiet time between seasons, I thought I'd get your view on something that's been bugging me for years whenever the situation crops up. When a player is, say, 27 behind with 27 remaining, and all colours are on or near their spots, they invariably clear up for a respotted black. Now, I love a respotted black as much as the next person, but it's a lottery, isn't it? Especially with the coin toss. So, when then doesn't the trading player? So why then doesn't the trading player, instead of clearing up, try and set a snooker? Get foul points, then win the frame outright while they've got control of the table instead of leaving it to chance. Well, you're right. I mean, they, they tend to play for the respot now. Um, going back, you know, well, a few decades, you did see more often these sort of old-school players, they would at times play for the snooker. But I think players, it's in the, a player's DNA. If they've got a chance to win the frame... And really, you know, you, the black coming back on, you still have the chance to win the frame. Then why not um, play for it? Um, because the snooker you know, could go wrong or whatever. It, it, it really emphasises, I think, the fact that it's a less cautious era. It's, it's an attacking era. It's about potting. Um, it kind of did used to happen playing for snooker. It doesn't happen as much now. In fact, it's very rare. Unless a player loses position, maybe, then they're forced into it. It's quite rare now, I think, that they'll play for the snooker. Uh, but something to watch out for, maybe, <clears throat> as the season goes on. Now, Donal Murtagh writes, oh, As you're clearly struggling for content, <laughs> we may be struggling a bit in future, Donal, uh, here's something that might whet your appetite. My personal view of Ronnie, the Ronnie O'Sullivan, is that he's the greatest snooker player in the professional game, but one of the worst human beings. I say one of because Quinton Han is also a strong contender. This is by no means a comprehensive list of tran- transgressions, but just those I can recall from memory. Okay, and he lists uh, a bunch of things that Ronnie's done, stripped of an Irish master's title for failing a drugs test, assaulting a tournament official in an early crucible appearance, quitting a match before its conclusion against Stephen Hendry, sitting in his seat with a towel over his head against Mark King, constantly threatening to quit the game, but only once following through, making lewd sexual comments when being interviewed in Chinese TV by an interviewer who he knew wouldn't understand him, doing post-match interviews in an Australian accent, doing post-match interviews in a robotic voice, complaining about torment conditions, e.g. Crawley's smelling of urine, which the other players seem to have no problems with, stating he would form a breakaway tour, which came to nothing, swapping his footwear mid-match with a referee, mark a torment director, biting off his Q-tip in the middle of a match. Some of these transgressions are relatively harmless, but many are indicative of his upbringing as a sport-only child from a wealthy family. For far too long, the governing body indulged his idiosyncrasies because it seemed Snooker needed Ronnie more than Ronnie needed Snooker. Well, just one thing, he was right about Crawley. <laughs> Maybe the way he said it was a bit over the top, but, I mean, that, that was not an appropriate venue for a ranking event. Or rather, the fact that all the other leisure activities were happening at the same time, the swimming and the squash and the bowls and everything, it didn't make it an appropriate venue for the ranking event. And they did, they did a photo shoot, effectively, in a toilet. That's why it smelled of urine. It just wasn't an appropriate way to treat top sports people. But, anyway, on the, on the wider point, I'm actually going to defend Ronnie O'Sullivan here um for this reason okay he he has caused hassle for people working in snooker including myself at times uh i don't however think ronnie o'sullivan is a malicious person it isn't like alex higgins who particularly towards the end when he was at torments there was always a, a, a slight feeling of threat sometimes a physical threat you don't get that with ronnie what you get with ronnie is a man who has huge and i mean huge mood swings okay we all have mood swings we all at times feel really good and at times not so good but his are pretty violent and they can happen within a space of a few hours and I'll give you an example okay this is from last week I was at the Championship League at the Morningside Arena in Leicester and Ronnie was playing first match of the season turned up for his match at 12 o'clock could not have been in better spirits he was really buzzing to play I mean I wasn't earwigging but he was literally sat next to me he was on the phone to someone saying yeah I'm playing snook again really looking forward to it and he was looking forward. To it. You could see he was chatting to everybody, really good mood. He said, "You yeah, know, yeah, Leicester's nice, isn't it? Next time I'm going to come on the train. It's only an hour from London. I'm going to. There's a canal I can go running. I'm going to get some pals to go running with them." All was good. He went out and played his first match. Uh, he didn't play great, but it was the first match he won. But then he had a four-hour gap until his second match, and that's a lot of time when you've got nothing to do. You couldn't actually go running last week because he had an injury, and in that time. His mood completely changed. He came back at five o'clock, and it was clear he basically wanted to go home. He said to Fergal O'Brien, "I'm not going to play any safety shots. I'm just going to, you know, play as quick as I can. Go for everything." And he did. Now he was still good enough to win the group, doing that because, let's be honest, you know, Ronnie going for his shots, he can get most of them. Um, but the bottom line is, he you know he wasn't in a in a good place by then. He did an interview, which Matcham actually couldn't use because he was just basically. You know, the way he was talking, it wasn't very positive. It was about the whole game itself. But mind this is day one of the season, his 30th season. It was a complete 360-degree turn from how he'd been at 12 o'clock. And that is what I've observed over the years. His mood just changes on a sixpence. Now, that can make him quite hard to deal with, but I think people in the snooker world have, have learnt how to deal with him and learnt how to sort of deal with the hassle and set it aside. But let's look at it another way. He must be quite hard to live with. I'm not a doctor I can't diagnose him as bipolar but it is in that ballpark as far as I can observe the just the real shifts in mood he's had to deal with this you know his whole life it can't be easy it also can't be easy okay you know he did have quite um, as an early early in his early life quite a privileged up bringing at a table at home his dad got top amateurs professionals to come and play him so he had advantages maybe some players didn't but he still had to do everything else on his own. When you're out there, you're on your own. He won the UK Championship at 17, so he became a huge star. And OK, that opened the door to money and endorsements and all the rest of it. But he also became public property at a very young age. And, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure everyone listening to this, certainly me, we've never had to deal with that. we never experienced it. We don't know what it's like. It must be difficult. It must be difficult. Um, there are many advantages as well of being famous, of course. But I get the feeling that Ronnie is actually quite a private person and doesn't like all that hassle. So, essentially, even though you've listed things that have happened and I'm not defending them, I think that the bottom line with Ronnie is just that violent sort of mood swing that he suffers. He never quite knows himself what he's going to be like. And given all that, what he's achieved on the table is remarkable, really. A sport that is associated with discipline. Um, to have achieved all that with, you know, this, this whatever condition you want to call it, he definitely has it. Um, and indeed, he's written books where he's discussed, you know, his 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 problems with mental illness. I actually think he's a, he's a credit to the sport. And like I say, you know, he can be he can be difficult to deal with at times. But his contribution to the sport far outweighs any of that stuff. It far outweighs any of the things he says in interviews. It far outweighs any of the. I mean, talking in an Australian accent was weird. It was, it was odd. It didn't damage the game. It didn't damage the game. It was a talking point. Just one of those things. So broadly speaking. I'm going to defend him. Like I say, he's not a malicious person. Um, He can be really good value. At other times, he can be challenging to deal with for for the reasons I've I've talked about. Uh, We move on to Kerry Richards, who says, The bombshell of there being only one email sent last week, this was a few weeks ago, of course, has prompted me to fast-track one I was going to send once the season resumed. The basic premise is similar to that which occurs with the Air Gold Cup during the flat racing season, where in 1992 an Air Silver Cup was created as a, as a race for horses not rated high enough for the main event. Although an obvious secondary event, it, it's always a competitive heat and a nice prize for owners and trainers alike. In a snooker sense, I'd be fascinated by torment tournament for mid-ranking players, preferably those outside the top 32. Before we touch upon some obvious issues with this principle, such an event would be of great interest to me, where the likes of Scott Donaldson, Mark Joyce and Robert Milkins will be at the head of the betting market. I'd find that refreshing. There are so many quality players beneath the top 32 who bar the odd good result against a big name rarely go deep into tournaments. How would Mark Davis, Lou Hiashan or Mark King genuinely fair against similar ranked players in the semi-final? There are obvious flaws with this such as a tournament that effectively rewards the less successful players not allowing the top 32 to enter or even running the event concurrently with a top 32 event and the issues around sponsorship and a lesser prize pot but as a one-off each season I think it would capture the interest of genuine snooker fans as something a bit different, crash helmet firmly in place for all for the flap this will no doubt get. Thanks as ever for the great work each week with the podcast, and long may it continue. Well, <laughs> we'll see about that on that last point. But anyway, um now my memory is <clears throat> about 30 years ago. There actually were some tournaments that were for players, certainly outside the top 16, maybe the 32, and I'm pretty sure David Taylor was one of them. I think David Taylor, who seems to be the new Fergal on this podcast. He won something called the Apple Yard Ripon Tournament. Now, you know, this is a tournament I suspect even he maybe has forgotten about now. But I'm pretty sure that that was uh, for players outside, certainly the 16, because, you know, <laughs> why would he have won it? At that stage, he was sort of dropping down the rankings. Um, I have a feeling Robbie Folvari either won one or possibly lost to Alex Higgins in one. There was a, a fa- There was favourite fried chicken who, you know, the sort of, the, the, the company Kentucky Fried Chicken could have been. They sponsored one, which I think possibly Alex Higgins won or, or lost in the final of. Um, I know this is not exactly uh, <laughs> this is not exactly the sort of hard fact you come for, but I'm pretty sure that these events in the late 80s were a thing. Now, you know, without wishing to pick at an open saw, if Michael was here now, he would definitely know all this. He would remember all this. He'd give you the scores. Unfortunately, he's not. So, so, um, maybe some more research needs to be done on that, but I think these tournaments did exist. It's an interesting idea um sort of second tier within the actual tour um I suppose though you, what you could have is a situation where players, for example seventeen to thirty two so they don't get in the masters, they wouldn't get in this either. They feel a bit left out suddenly, you're being punished for being thirty one in the world maybe for thirty three you' get in these other events, and also, I suppose again from a commercial perspective, a marketing perspective, who's going to sponsor them, who's going to broadcast them, would there actually be a public appetite for them? I I suspect, on balance, people would probably feel there wouldn't be... They'd like to watch these players, but in a tournament with the top players. But, you know, an interesting thought, Kerry, so thank you for getting in contact. Christian Barber. The reason I wanted to email, Christian says, was to pick up on a couple of things which have been mentioned after Judd Trump spoke out recently. So this interview that he did with Phil Hague... He's still rumbling on from before the World Championship. That's me adding that in, by the way. That's not, uh, that's not Christian. He continues, As someone who enjoys snooker but wasn't born in time for the snooker boom, watching documentaries such as Gods of Snooker and hearing yourselves talk about the era which I wasn't able to see is so important to me as it provides a history to the game which acts as a framework into which my own experiences can fit around. As an example of what I mean, I'm also a big football fan being born and bred in Portsmouth. They are my team. Despite countless pundits reminding us when we see statistics posted about achievements in the Premier League era that football did exist before the Premier League, that history is very rarely referred to now and that's a real shame. For someone like myself, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn all about club legends such as Jimmy Dickinson and Alan Knight if we hadn't had the opportunity to look back and enjoy the past and it's helped to shape the way I act and feel about my football club. But this history is sometimes hard to come by because all focus is now on the Premier League era. Back to snooker then, and my point really is to encourage you to keep doing exactly what you are. Make those niche references, refer to the past as often as you can, because for me, it allows me to fill in the gaps in my snooker knowledge. I know all the main stories, but sometimes you guys just have to mention something little that makes no sense to me, and it happens a fair amount, but it gives me the opportunity then to research that and to continue to backfill my knowledge base. In fact, the kind of thing that I'd love to hear is something like a short or even better long profile on past players. I'm not sure if it's something you've done in the past, but a short history, maybe pick one player per week, and a profile of players. It doesn't always have to be past players. You could do current ones too. Just something covering how they got into snooker, what their traits were, how successful they were, etc. Because even now, I hear you talking about players who are in the top 16 in the early 90s, and their names I've never heard before, and it would be fascinating for me to hear more about them. Thank you very much, Christian. Well, um... On that latter point, I don't know if you've how many back episodes you've listened to, but we did a thing a few years ago called the Snooker Player Bingo, which affiliates uh, Neil, and Alan and various people appeared on, and basically it was just chatting about sort of, long, in some cases long forgotten names, in some cases better known players, but stories about them. So we, maybe check those out. There's all sorts, all sorts going on there. Um, it was interesting, you know, talk about nostalgia in snooker. It seems to me it applies to every sport. You know, if you watch the European Football Championship certainly on British television, the amount of nostalgia about the past when it came to the England team, particularly Euro 96, which has been romanticised to the extent where you could be forgiven for thinking England actually won it, the amount of times it's sort of wrapped up in this sort of uh, bow of nostalgia. I'll go back to what I've said before. To me, history is very important. History is very important to know where you've come from, um, to know what what uh, what's happened in, in this case, in, in the snook world, how we've got to where we are um, sort of dreamy-eyed nostalgia, pretending everything was better then. I'm not so keen on, but history is very important, and it, you know, it, it, it's how it's it's in the DNA of how we follow sports. Wimbledon was the same as a lot of sort of going back to the past. There, we'll have it with the Olympics as well, because it's all another stitch in a great thread, isn't it? You know, the World Championship, World Snooker Championship, in a few years' time, will be a hundred years old. There's a lot of history there, uh, and you're right. It's good to celebrate that. I don't think Trump. Is against history though. Trump was against the sort of constant harking on about the same three or four kind of narrow subjects within a period of time, and I, I do understand his perspective on that. Um, but it's good to know that you're you're up for niche niche chat. Um, so we will. Well, I say we. I will. <laughs> I will uh, hopefully continue it. Right. Uh, we continue. Where are we? Tim Forty. Thanks for such an entertaining podcast, Tim writes. Your show is now cemented into my weekly snooker diet, especially as I drive to my snooker league matches on Monday evenings here in Melbourne, Australia. After listening to episode 163 and hearing you only received one email, I got concerned you'd be deflated and hang up your pod mics. Well, Tim, irony of ironies, one of us has. Uh, Or rather, he's taken his pod mic to another another podcast. (laughs) So here's my contribution to boost morale and to remind you what... You do mean something to people. I was born and bred watching snooker football and rugby league in Yorkshire, mainly in the 80s. However, snooker wasn't a game that was easy to take up back then as kids. I mean, I just couldn't walk into a smoky beer-swelling snooker club in my school shorts, buy a shandy and slap my coins on the table, on the side of a table and shout, I'll play the winner. I suppose Alex Higgins did. Anyway, forward 35 years, I was at a point in my life where I'd had it up to my eyeballs with my career as a creative in advertising. Wasn't, it just wasn't the same back in London in the 90s when you'd go drinking all day to get the creative juices flowing. Then later you'd stumb, stumble back into the office for some more drinking to be suddenly hit with a flash of genius. You'd furiously type away into the night on a typewriter to deliver an award-winning TV script before the deadline, then hit the bar again to celebrate a job well done. This is this, Again, Euro 96 seems to be uh, <laughs> in the background of this. He says, uh, these days all the creativity, fun and money has been drained out of good advertising, so I needed... Creative outlet, I found it in Snooker. Luckily, there was a Snooker club two blocks away from my current advertising agency, where I was employed here in Melbourne. Neil Robertson played here in his early days. He says it's the RACV City Club. So I picked up the queue for the first time and took it upon myself to teach myself the game, whilst being paid quite handsomely for it. Every day for the last three years of my full-time employment, before opening our winery retreat, I take off to the club to to work off-site, so to speak. Sometimes for uh, two, three, four, five, six hours a day. Often I would see many of the club regulars and the resident club coach, Robbie Folvari, if you see him, ask him about that uh, favorite fried chicken event. um, I'd see him looking on inquisitively. They probably wondered what I did for a living. As I turned up without fail every day with my practice routines, I was hooked. The passion for this sport inside me is huge and in a small way, I'm a little sad I never took it up seriously in my younger days. However, I'm hugely grateful to have found this sport at this stage of my life, which gives me so much joy and a creative outlet that advertising just can't give me anymore. I'm also delighted to have found your podcast that also gives me anonymous amounts of entertainment. So chin up, boys. Keep up the great work as snooker and your podcast still means something, unlike the dross of 90% of advertising out there. Thank you, and I hope the emails pick up. He says, P.S. Since leaving my cushy full-paid practice arrangement, I've made my first practice century of one hundred eleven. Well, well done. And the, the key phrase in there, I think for me, just sort of thrown away was was winery retreats. And that sounds <laughs> that sounds very nice. I got to say, but uh, it's good. I think the the key there is snooker. It is for any age. And one of the things in the last year with the pandemic, with the lockdowns, a lot of the social activity that people have got out of snooker, people who are never going to be world champion, they don't want to be, but they like to meet up with their friends maybe on a Wednesday afternoon. It's a regular thing they do. They play snooker, have a drink have a chat, catch up, that's kind of gone. And this is true of any sport. It's not just, you know, a lot of the sort of TV coverage of sport presses the, the buttons of excellence. It's all about being the best you can. I was just watching the the Taekwondo final, as you do every once every four years. And our plucky Brit got the silver, he was very disappointed not to get the gold, said he'd throw it away. Now, at the top level, that is what sport's about. It's all about winning and losing. But in society... It is a social activity for most people and playing snooker, meeting up with your pals to have a game and just finding an outlet that way, you know, is, is quite valuable and rewarding it's something people haven't been able to do in many parts of the world, although snooker clubs have picked up. I was talking to David Grace last week at the Championship League and he said when the Northern Snooker Centre in Leeds reopened, there was a, basically a waiting list. Um, people were queuing outside at 10.30 in the morning. they got 27 tables and the people queuing outside. So um, you know looking forward to getting back to playing snooker they all were so you know it's uh, it shows you that it's a, it is a very important sport not just for people to follow professionally but actually to play socially as well let's move on to Ian Lewis who writes thank you to yourself and Michael for continuing with the podcast even during the season downtime yeah well it's a certain irony there isn't there um, I just had a couple of thoughts relating to recent episodes Michael remember him mentioned there were some good videos appearing on YouTube recently of old frames matches etc just wondered if you and Michael had any favourite YouTube snooker channels you subscribe to for this content on the recent discussion of Federer withdrawing from a tournament I just wondered if a player does withdraw even as late as say the semi-finals do they forfeit any winnings up to that point or does it depend on the circumstances well on that latter point it does depend on the circumstances I mean if you're taken ill you know you have a doctor's note then you will get your prize money um you know, if there are other reasons that you can't sort of prove, or or that the the powers that be don't accept, then you won't. But overwhelmingly, they 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 would get their winnings. YouTube, uh, there's several channels. There's M J T Snooker, uh, Stephen Trevor. They're two that have all sorts of old stuff, um, and from there you you will automatically link to other accounts. There's one one I've noticed called Road to Snooker Finals. They've got a lot of stuff there. Um, and there's a few others as well. But, but yeah, if you get into that area, start searching for those guys. MGT, MJT Snooker, Stephen Trevor. There's loads of stuff on there. It's, it must be people who taped stuff years ago or got access to people who did. Um, and, you know, literally hours of fun can be can be had. And I, I find it, obviously, the snooker fascinating from that time. But the TV coverage as well. Um, it's interesting to see how it's evolved. It's evolved for the better. It really has. TV coverage now is so much better. The, the amount of cameras, the angles... Um, you know, this the the fact there's a score graphic on screen f- f- all the time. That didn't happen until the the, the mid nineties. Um, you could watch Snooker for five minutes or so, and not know what the score was. <laughs> so yeah, things that things have changed, things have improved, I think. And but anyway, it's 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 all there on YouTube. Lee Wall writes: Do you think the lack of young players bursting onto the scene is a genuine concern? Is Snooker in danger of sleepwalking into a scenario where in five or so years' time the circuit has become stale due to being to still being full of the same old faces and not many players under thirty winning tournaments. Well, it is a concern. Um, they're coming through at a in a, at a smaller rate. They're breaking through as champions as well. Um, later than they once did. Yan Bing Tao, of course, accepted. I mean, he is a player who's won the Masters at the age of twenty. So you know you can't argue with that. Um, but the, the sort of what we perceive as young players are now older. When you look at what the Hendries did. Stephen Hendry won seven world titles uh, by the age, Well, he was 30 when he won his seventh. Incredible. Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan won the UK Championship, as I mentioned earlier, at 17. John Higgins won three ranking titles as a teenager. Ding jun wee emulated that. These are special players, these guys. Um, but, you know, we know that it, there's been a bit of a drain in terms of the number of uh, places, the number of competitions for younger players. There's been a societal change, cultural change in the UK... Around the world, though, places like China is the obvious place. Uh, there are players coming through, but we come back to this thing where everything's—if everything's based in the UK, qualifying and so on—it costs money to come over. Now, Ch- Ch- the Chinese players are funded, the Hong Kong players are funded, but not everyone is. Igor Figueroa um, was saying he did an interview on the WST website. They've done a, now. Let's for once actually pay them a compliment. They've done a lot of really good interviews this summer in the gaps between events. And the one with Eagle was interesting, and, and he was talking about snooker being in the Olympics. A lot of people look at that as, why should snooker be in the Olympics? The pinnacle will always be the World Championship, which is a point I agree with. But he made the best argument I think we've ever heard for snooker being in the Olympics. He said, if snooker was in the Olympics, players from various nations would suddenly have access to funding, which they don't have now, because all the local sports bodies would want to push you know, uh, for Olympic medals. Um, We've seen in the UK the lottery money started in the 90s, poured into British sport, has made British sport a powerhouse in terms of the Olympic disciplines. Um, The irony being actually, you know, we're already great at snooker, maybe we wouldn't need it, but a lot of countries would. And Igor, you know, has to fund himself. It's not easy. And he's in the same position a lot of non-British players are in. But if it was an Olympic sport, maybe they would have access to it. Um, By the way, there's absolutely no prospect at the moment of it becoming an Olympic sport. It's very unlikely i would i would imagine uh well i think 2030 actually is the earliest it could be um and that's just been announced for brisbane in australia don't see any reason really why they would want snooker necessarily in the olympics there so i know jason ferguson the wpa chairman it's his dream to sort of pull this off he's done a lot of work but i have my doubts personally whether it'll happen but i think eagle figurators argument was one of the best that i've actually heard martin eccles who we heard from earlier sent another email he said hi gentlemen seeing that you're needing an email and Finland are watching the football Martin from Carlo has posed a question had Stephen Hendry had had Stephen Hendry not ever taken up his queue what number of world titles would Steve Davis have won and if O'Sullivan hadn't picked up his queue and Hendry played a bit longer the same teaser how many titles for the Scott well it's we don't know is the answer um, obviously <clears throat> if those players had never played someone else would have come in and Say Steve Davis had never played snooker. Well, what, Well, one of the things I don't think would have happened is I don't think snooker would actually have become as big. I, I mentioned before, I think he's the key figure definitely in making snooker respectable. But leaving that to one side, I guess there would have been more chance for people like Alex Higgins, Cliff Thorburn, Terry Griffiths, Dennis Taylor, the 80s players, to win world titles, maybe Jimmy White. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's an impossible question to answer, isn't it? Um, someone else would have won them, I guess. Maybe... You know, if Hendry had not had Ronnie O'Sullivan to deal with, or or in fact Higgins and Williams, he would have won more, but there's just absolutely no way, I'm afraid, of proving it one way or the other. Tony Finnegan writes, just like to digress slightly with a story from one of my past visits to the World Championship at the Crucible, but don't worry, there is a point to the story. Listen, Tony, it doesn't matter if there is or not, I'll, I'll read out anything at the minute. He says... It was back in 2005 and myself and a friend had tickets for the first round clash between Anthony Hamilton and David Gray. We knew Ronnie was also playing that morning against Stephen Maguire but would be on the other side of the dividing screen. As both of us were big Ronnie fans, we were slightly disappointed but still very much looking forward to the Hamilton-Gray match. I even half-jokingly said if our match finishes first, they may lift the screen up and we'll be able to see some in the Ronnie game. Well, these words <laughs> came back well and truly to haunt me. The scene was set, the players were introduced, the screen came down, the matches began. Both Hamilton and Gray were clearly struggling with the occasion. There was no fluency, lots of unforced errors. The highest break in the first session I don't think got above 40. The groans from the crowds increased as more easy balls were missed, but no one could doze off because on the other table there were frequent bursts of rapturous applause and cheering as centuries big breaks and long pots were flying in from everywhere. The crowd for the Ronnie game... Went for their mid-session intervals, the second frame for the Hamilton-Grey match was just starting. In the end, the players were pulled off with frames still to play to make way for the afternoon session. There were times when I just wanted to shout, please lift the screen up. But of course, as a snooker lover, I contain myself. Anyway, the point of the story, at other multi-table snooker events, there is a small waist-high barrier between tables which allows you to see the action on the other tables. I may be wrong, but I think the Crucible is the only multi-table event now with the floor-to-ceiling divider. So is this because the players obviously prefer less distractions from adjacent matches? Maybe it's so the sponsor can have greater coverage, a greater coverage area on the dividing screen. Or is it the lack of space from a waist-high screen the players may be nearly touching each other with their Q-arms? I realise it's always been tradition at the Crucible for the floor-to-ceiling divider. And after all, Cliff Thorburn's 147 wouldn't have been the same without Bill Werbenek's head peeking around the screen as he was aiming for the yellow. I also remember Sean Murphy asking for the screen to be lifted up when he was on a 147 so to allow the whole crowd to see the action. He wouldn't have had to do this if there had been just a waist-high screen. I would be interested to hear yours and Michael's thoughts on this issue. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, Should it change? Will it change? Or will the scramble for the crucible seats situated on the centre aisle that allow views of both tables continue to be the most sought-after tickets on the circuit? Incidentally, I thought Anthony Hamilton's commentary for Eurosport at the last World Championship was excellent, and if he's listening, I hope he doesn't take this email about his previous matches too personally. Well, I sort of feel your pain there, Tony, because um, one of the first matches I ever went to see or tried to see was at Trentham Gardens in Stoke International Open, in nineteen eighty nine. It wasn't on ITV; they dropped it. So to watch it, you had to go to Stoke. And Hendry had just beaten James Wattana, the new star from Thailand, in the in the Asian Open final in Bangkok. So there's a lot of buzz around the fact they'd drawn each other in an early round. I think it was even like last sixty four or something. Um, because obviously the rankings, you know, were set for the year. So in fact, what's I've been in the final made no difference. So I thought, oh, I've got to go and watch that. But of course, I, I, in my young mind, I, I didn't take into account that lots of other people would have had the same idea. So getting there, every seat was taken. Um, and the nearest table was Terry Griffiths against Steve Newbury. Now, I love Terry Griffiths. He's, he's one of my favourite players, favourite people. But uh, his match with Newbury never seemed like being a classic and indeed wasn't. And all the time, and we couldn't see the Hendry-Wattenau match, all the time there were these cheers and whoops and hollers from that one. So I, I've been in that position myself. I think you've answered it yourself there. Having a small uh, sort of fence, if you like, a you know, waist-high, as you put it, at that venue, it just it's just too small. The venue's too small. They would be queuing up back-to-back at times. And I think it would be very distracting in such a small space to not have the wall in what is, after all, our biggest... Tournament. And also, you know, like you say, it has always been there. It's one of those things, it's kind of that little frizzle of excitement when the wall finally comes up and you get the, the arena to yourself when one match is finished is, is part of the sort of championships folklore. So I think it's very unlikely to change, personally. I I, I don't really see it changing. Um, I think we're going to end there. We, thank you to everyone who emailed in. There's a couple more as well, which hopefully we'll get to a future date. Thanks in particular, actually, to Dan Hay, who sent a list of snooker player anagrams after I suggested we might be reduced to, to that as a feature. Uh, we may get to them at some point, Dan. My favourite one, actually, was, was Andy Hicks, who's an anagram of icky hands. <laughs> so, yes, Andy Hicks, icky hands. But anyway, thank you for those. Um, we're going to wrap up there. Uh, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network, so do check out their other podcasts. You can email us as well at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's podcast. At mal.com. I need to stop talking now because it doesn't seem natural to just be sat talking to yourself for so long. But uh, anyway, I hope uh, you've enjoyed this. It's, it's obviously a slightly different era now for the podcast. As for the future, you know, we'll see. We've been going now for six years in various forms, so it may, may be the right time, I don't know, to, to reinvent the act again. I do hope to have some exciting guests on in future weeks. I've, I've yet to actually ask them, any of them, but uh, anyway, uh, hopefully, hopefully they will come on and uh, we will continue. Uh, so that's it, you know. Uh, as we reach the end, to be honest, I think I actually, I will actually miss. Um, I will miss. Uh, what was his name again?
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ah ha! In my dentist's office.